The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City... As I read in and at the end, I'll invite you by when I say, uh, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond with thanks be to God. So I am reading out of John chapter 6, verses 28 through 40 this morning. What can we do to perform the works of God? They asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the bread. But my father gives you the bread. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the father gives me will come true will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of, the, of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This Good morning, Story City. How's everybody doing today? Awesome. Uh, let me unlock my iPad. There you go. Uh, my name is Chris Wozniki. Uh, people call me Woz, and I uh, am joining you this morning from Granada Hills. I am one of the elder candidates at our Granada Hills location. I also happen to work for a wonderful ministry called Young Life, whose entire purpose is to introduce, yeah, there you go, uh, introduce adolescents to Jesus and help them grow in their faith. Um, it's a tiny bit about me. I'll tell you a little bit about my family. Um, so a couple weeks ago, I was mindlessly scrolling through Instagram reels, uh, stories, and Instagram suggested that I make a reel. Uh, so it took some, you know how it suggests that, it took some pictures of mine, some older pictures, uh, some throwbacks, and kind of put them together with some background music to make like a little reel. Um, this real memory was of my oldest daughter, who is now seven, uh, when she was celebrating her third birthday. So that put me in a really nostalgic mood, and I decided to scroll through the thousands of pictures that I have on my phone of my kids. Um, so I started scrolling through some of those pictures, went back to Instagram, scrolled through some old posts, and I came across this post, which is my youngest daughter, Abby, uh, and her first time in the snow. Throw that picture up there. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, several years ago. She's uh, going on four now. Um, but yeah, my kids, as you can see, uh, this one, she loves the snow. Both of my kids love the snow. I don't know what it is about snow. It's cold. It's wet. Sometimes it's yellow. It's just not good overall. It's gross. I don't like it. Um, but I think the reason they love it is frozen, so I blame frozen. I blame frozen for a lot of things. Um, you know, I, I remember, uh, not this particular time, but another time, we were driving up to the snow one time when they were a little bit older, uh, and they were stoked that we're going to the snow. And Shiloh, my oldest, is just staring out the window, um, 
and pretty low, like on the ground. We're kind of low down the mountain, not all the way up yet. Um, there's a patch of snow, and she spots it, and she says, oh, look, there's snow. We're nowhere near, like, the fresh stuff. At this point, it's just icy, brown, muddy stuff. So she says, look, Abby, look at the snow. And Abby, she gets super excited because she's been waiting. She's like, snow, snow, I want to get out. And all I can think is, like, ew, like, we don't want to get out here. Like, this is muddy ice. Like, this, there's, like, dirt, there's asphalt in it. It's really disgusting. But she wants to get out. Um, and I say, okay, just, just wait a little bit. We're going to get to better snow. Because I know, in my mind, just 30 minutes up the mountain, it's going to be fresh powder. Like, that's the kind of snow that they can actually play with. That's the kind of snow that they are waiting for. And she starts kind of throwing a little bit of a fit. And Shiloh, who's the older sister, she's a great older sister, she chimes in and says, Abby, just wait. We can't build a snowman there. We can throw snowballs up higher. Just wait. And the frustration kicks in with Abby. She, she starts throwing, a, not really a tantrum, but she's like, ah, complaining, you know. Um, she doesn't get it, right? She's a kid. She's short-sighted. She doesn't understand that if she waits a little bit, there's something significantly better for her just up the road. This morning, we're going to look at a passage in Scripture where we'll see that some people, um, I would say us as well, but some people that Jesus talks to specifically are short-sighted. They're satisfied with something lesser when something greater is actually in front of them. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into Scripture. Jesus, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you have designed and desired to speak to us through it, that you reveal your truth and that you reveal yourself to us through it. I pray that this morning that our hearts and our ears would be open to hearing your word, your message, exactly what it is that you have for us to hear. Put us in a posture of attentiveness to you. Let our hearts be ready uh, for what you have to say. Praise in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. Um, if this is your first time visiting, I would say it's my first time visiting, but it's not because we used to be here before we launched. Um, I'd like to welcome you this morning. Uh, this week, we're going to take a look at the Gospel of John. Uh, this is one of four biographies that we have of Jesus uh, in the Bible. And this one's especially interesting because it uses a lot of metaphors and symbols. And in this book in particular, Jesus uses seven specific metaphors to reveal his identity to us. Uh, for example, he calls himself the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the vine, the resurrection and the life, the truth and the life. This morning, we're going to look at one of those metaphors, which is actually the first one that he uses in the Gospel of John. Uh, so open up your Bibles or your apps to John chapter 6, and I will set the context for this passage as you turn there. Um, here's, here's kind of what's been going on uh, right before the passage that we're reading. Jesus had been gathering some really big crowds. He'd been performing a bunch of miracles, and people start following him around. So this crowd gathers with him on this hill by the sea, right? and he spends a day teaching, healing, you know, doing his Jesus thing. Um, the day starts to wrap up. People are getting hungry, right? So he asks his disciples, hey, guys, there's like 5,000 men and like include the children and the women. So we're like up to like 10,000 people in this crowd. 
can we get them some food, right? 10,000 people's worth of food. Where are they going to get this? So he asked one of his disciples, and he's like, okay, like, where, where can we get this? And Philip says, well, um, we can't, like, ever afford to feed this many people. Just think about, like, if you have a family, if you have a large family, if you have a small family, trying to feed them, like, is expensive. You go to Chick-fil-A, you're spending, like, 50 bucks on, like, four people. Imagine 10,000 people, right? What's that going to cost? Um, so he says, we can never afford that. So Philip, he fills this test. He asks his next disciple, Andrew. He's like, okay, what are we going to do? So Andrew comes up, and he's like, hey, there's this kid. He has uh, two fish and five breadsticks. Obviously, it's not enough for everyone, but, like, maybe we could have a little snack. Um, They can worry about their own food. So he fails that test, too. So Jesus tells everybody to sit down. So they sit down. Um, He takes this kid's happy meal, and he prays. He gives thanks and starts handing out the bread to people. Next thing you know, the disciples are collecting leftovers. Right? Leftovers. 10,000 people and you still have leftovers. And all of a sudden, the people, they're kind of watching the disciples and they realize what happened. Right? This man took two fish and five loaves, multiplied it, and fed 10,000 people. And it clicks. If this guy could do this, what else could he do for us? Can he multiply money? Could he multiply weapons so we could go up against the Romans and free ourselves? And Jesus realizes what they're thinking. Verse 15 says this. Therefore Jesus realized that they were about to come to take him by force and to make him king. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus pieces out. The next morning, uh, the crowd finds him. You know, they They hunt him down. They find him on the other side of the sea, and that's where we pick up for this morning's lesson. Verse 26. Jesus answered, Truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. So he calls him out. He's like, you're only into me because I fed you. It's kind of like a puppy, right? Give it some treats and it'll love you. The second you run out of treats, bye. Well, that's really where they're at. They want Jesus because of what he has to offer to them. They have an agenda and Jesus is useful to them. He's useful for their pursuit of what they want. So Jesus calls him out. He says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for food that lasts for eternal life. And they hear that and think, okay, fine. Um, you say we need to work to get you to do what we want. Fine, Jesus. Okay, what good works do you need us to do? Right? What kind of religious hoops do you need us to jump through so you can do what we want? And they're showing Jesus, like, they're short-sighted. They don't get it. They don't understand how God works. Verse 29, Jesus replied, This is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. Believe. That's it. Believe in Jesus. I think it's worth stopping here for a second to remind ourselves that this is actually the gospel right here. It's by grace through faith. It's trust in Jesus. It's by that that you're saved. Not through your works so none of us can boast. All you're called to do is put your trust in Jesus. That's what God is actually looking for. So let's keep going. 
here um, Jesus tells them, believe in me, that's what God wants, okay? Uh, and then they say to him, okay, if you want us to believe, what sign are you going to perform? Don't expect us to believe, like, if you're not going to do anything for us. It's like, did they forget the whole 10,000 people thing? No, that's, that's not what happened. Like, obviously, they remember that he fed 10,000 people. So in verse 30, they say, what are you going to perform? They want Jesus to put on a show for them. They want Jesus to perform magic tricks for them. They want him to do something spectacular that's going to impress them. I don't know if you remember um, when you were a kid, uh, someone would ask you a question like, how many moons does Saturn have? I don't know if people ask you that question, but they, they'll ask a random question about something random. How many moons does Saturn have? And if you didn't know it, you would say, of course I know how many moons Saturn has. Do you even know it? Prove it. Right? And you'd get them to answer the question themselves. Or maybe that was just me just being tricky. Um, and you'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the right answer. I just wanted to see if you knew the answer. It was just a trick to get them to do what you wanted. And by the way, Saturn has 62 moons, in case uh, you were curious. That's a lot of moons. Um, well, this is their ploy to get Jesus to do what they want. Right? They want him to perform a miracle. So he says, you want us to be- they say, you want us to believe? Um, how about this time you do something even better? Right? Like, give us bread. But not just like one meal. Give us bread forever. That's what Moses did. Moses gave us unlimited breadsticks. No salad, just breadsticks. <laughs> Verse 31 says this. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. There's actually something, I think, really interesting here. Um, They're pointing to the real agenda, which isn't just bread. Surprise, surprise. Um, There's actually a political agenda underlying their question. They're pointing to the time when Moses liberated the Hebrews from the oppression of Pharaoh. The Jews at this time, in Jesus' day, were currently under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Moses was their deliverer. They were hoping for another political deliverer. They wanted Jesus to fulfill their political agenda. So these people asked Jesus for a sign. What do signs do? Does anybody know what a sign does? Points you in the direction, right? Signs point to things. The miracles were signs that were supposed to point to who Jesus really was. Remember I said there are seven signs that point to his identity and what that means for us. They don't see the sign. They just see miracles. They don't see the sign pointing to Jesus. What they see when they see Jesus' miracles are their desires, their ambitions, how Jesus fits into their own plans. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. They don't get it. They're oblivious to what Jesus is offering them. So Jesus gives them a truth bomb. Verse 35. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. If you're taking notes, this is our main idea for this morning. Jesus offers us the only thing that truly sustains himself. In each of these seven I am statements, uh, Jesus uses a metaphor to reveal his identity and what that means for us. Here he's using the metaphor of bread. 
In the ancient world, bread was the basic sustenance of life. Most of us probably don't think that way about bread. Like, we like bread. All of you have a favorite kind of bread. Um, when I go to Stonefire, like, that's the bread I want. Right? Take me to Olive Garden um, or even Cheesecake Factory. Some of that brown bread. Is it pumpernickel? What is it? I don't know. It's really good. Um, just Bread is amazing. Um, I don't need it but I want it. I know not everybody feels that way. Um, there's this classic clip, which uh, whenever I get the opportunity to show this clip, I do. So go ahead and take a look at the screen. Bread every day. There you go. <clears throat> Yes, there you go. Um, most of us don't feel the same way Oprah does about bread. Um, but every culture does have a, a thing pretty much that, like, you eat every day. Um, something that's like a basic sustenance. Uh, in my Guatemalan household growing up, um, it was tortillas and black beans. Like, that was the thing that sustained us. Um, Jesus is the tortilla of life, right? For some of you, um, that thing that you can't live without is coffee. You know, Jesus is the cold brew of life, whatever, right? Um, But he's speaking to this particular audience. uh, And for them, it's bread. So Jesus says he is the bread of life. And his audience would get that. Unlike us today, they wouldn't necessarily be guaranteed a complete meal every meal or even every day. When we think, what are we going to do after church? Like, oh, I'm going to go to in and out uh, maybe some Mexican food, maybe kava. Um, you, we have all these options, right? They couldn't guarantee that, but they could guarantee that they'd have bread every day. Bread is what kept you alive. It's a basic sustenance. So Jesus draws on this metaphor and says, I am the very thing that will sustain your life. I'm the very thing that you can't actually live without. I'm not bread because of the things that I give you I am the thing itself. So these crowds were looking to Jesus, and they're hoping that he would give them things that temporarily sustain literal food, political power, liberation from oppression. But we shouldn't look at them as just fools who don't get it. It's like, they have Jesus in front of them. How do they not get it? I think it's a perpetual temptation that all of us face. Right? We're all tempted to turn to things besides Jesus to sustain us. And the reality is that that's short-sighted. Uh, those of you who are parents uh, of kids, well, I guess parents of what else, right? Parents of kids. Um, or were kids at some point, um, know how short-sighted kids can be about food. Right? They'll want a granola bar or a piece of candy or something 10 minutes before dinner time. Um, they'll eat some junk now, and then dinner comes, and they're not hungry anymore. Um, you finish cleaning up, and they want food. It's like, what are you going to feed me? It's like you just ate a granola bar right before dinner, right? That's super short-sighted. That's all of us when it comes to being sustained by Jesus. Right? We want the junk food instead of the meal itself, which is Jesus. There's this British uh, comedian who captures this dynamic really well. Um, I don't know where he's at spiritually. I've heard him say some really interesting things. Um, but I know that he's onto something. And he's tapped into something which is just, I think, a part of the human psyche. Uh, Here's what Russell Brand says about being sustained 
uh, or fulfilled by stuff. He says, <clears throat> there's the initial, this is about being sustained by stuff. He says, there's the initial thrill of achievement. Oh my word, it's arrived. It's the same kind of thrill when you acquire a new pair of shoes. Some of you sneakerheads know what that's like. Um, new pair of shoes you long craved and you realize they're too tight. They're not as good as you hoped they would be when you walk around with them. And you realize you need some nutrition from a higher source. You need something more valuable. Being rich and famous is like being presented with a glorious meal and it's utterly vacuous. There's no taste, there's no sucker, there's no nutrition. It's tiresome. We have within us a yearning for something higher, for something more. Someone once told me that all desire is a desire to be with God in substitute form. Perhaps, just perhaps, we should draw attention not to the shadow on the wall, but to the source of life itself. So what are you turning to to sustain you? What are you turning to to fulfill you, to satiate that spiritual hunger? What are you tempted to think is the lasting source of life? We're designed to feed on God alone. Right? Everything else will leave us hungry. Uh, I'll, I'll switch the metaphor for a second. I got some, some props right here. Um, as I said, I do youth ministry, so I don't mind using props when I preach. It's all good. Um, I have a light here. Um, it's kind of cool. You plug it in, uh, and it gives light. So let me see if I can plug it in. Um, so I have this light here. Um, most of you have phones. Actually, most of you, all of you have phones. Uh, just assume that. Um, what do you do to turn it on or to keep it charged? You plug it into electricity, right? There's this uh, little light bulb here which is also powered by electricity. I guess all light bulbs, well, solar. Um, which is also, this is a, a power bank, right? So turn it on, boop, light. I know it's super bright up here, so it probably doesn't look super bright. Um, but, okay, so you plug it into power source, and it's turned on, right? Let me plug it into some other things which are not connected to a power source. What happens? Nothing. No light. Maybe this one will work. Let's try another one. Hmm? Nope. Maybe this one. Right? We can try all kinds of things. Maybe some of the things will actually work. Nope. Question is, switch up the metaphor. What are you plugging into to sustain you, to find life? Is this one going to work? Is it your spouse? Is it kids? The person you're in a relationship with? Is it your career? Is it your religious works? The fact that you're a good Christian? None of that will sustain. None of that can give you that energy, that power that you need. But Jesus offers himself Right? He is the source of that power. When you plug into Jesus, there's life. There's light, as we saw. So he's the one who offers that to us. But he also offers some other gifts that come along with being connected to him. Let me get this out of the way. Here's our second point, if you're taking notes again. 
Jesus offers us security. Security. Verse 36 says this, But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Christian life is a life of grace. It's grace from beginning, grace in the middle, and grace at the end. Once you let that truth really sink in, it changes the way that you think about your Christianity. It's grace all the way down. You were saved by grace. You didn't do anything to earn or deserve your salvation. You weren't super spiritual. It's not why God saved you. You weren't a good person. That's not why God saved you. You weren't especially sensitive to spiritual things, and that's why God saved you. You weren't super smart, and that's why God saved you. Do you know why God saved you? Do you want to know the reason? The reason has nothing to do with you. You didn't make him or convince him to rescue you. God saved you simply because he loved you. And it's by his grace that you're brought from death and into life. So get that. You did nothing to deserve your salvation. That also means that you can't do anything to undeserve your salvation. Some of you might be hesitant at that point. You're thinking, okay, I'm on board with that first part. I didn't deserve it, but can't I undeserve it? Does that mean, like, I can do whatever I want and I'll always be saved, like, no matter what? Like, I can go kill a bunch of people, lie on my taxes, root for the giants, and still be saved? Like, is that how this works? You know, if you approach salvation like that, it shows that you don't actually get what salvation is, how amazing grace actually is. Think of it this way. Um, When a couple gets married, they make vows, right? Till death do us part. Do those vows mean that you can do whatever you want in that relationship? Cheat, lie, abuse, because you made vows till death do us part? No. If someone made a a thought, hey, you made a vow to me, uh, and now you're stuck with me no matter how poorly I treat you, you would think there's something wrong, right? You would think, wow, like, this isn't a real relationship here. Like, this person doesn't actually love her. He doesn't get what this whole love thing is about. It's the same thing with our salvation. If you really got grace, you wouldn't think, oh, cool, like, I'm saved. Now I can do whatever I want. You wouldn't think, I'm going to go do whatever, and now God is stuck with me. Because once saved, always saved. No, you would think, he died for a wretch like me. How can I cling to him? What can I do to fight for our relationship? That's the truth of the gospel. It's from grace from the beginning, grace to the end. You didn't deserve it to get it. You didn't undeserve it. You're secure in Christ. And you might think like, okay, I can't lose it. Are you sure? Yeah, you can't. But not because you're so amazing, but because he is. There's this uh, older hymn, which I think we sing sometimes, or at least parts of it, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The, The lyrics say, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the face of God, He, to save my soul from danger, interposed his precious blood. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're prone to wander. 
prone to abandon God and his ways because it's hard. Because the Christian life is hard. We get tempted by other things, right, to draw sustenance from anything else except for God. That's our perpetual temptation. But again, the Christian life is grace from the beginning to the end. Despite your proclivity to wander, he's a good shepherd. Good shepherds don't lose their sheep. A good shepherd won't let you wander off and get lost. You're not secure because you're capable of keeping yourself from wandering, but because he is. I love how uh, John Calvin puts this. He says this. It's up on the screen. Christ is not the guardian of our salvation just for one day or even a few days, but he will take care of our salvation to the end. There's comfort in knowing that Jesus will walk with you till the end. Uh, I was at a Young Life camp a couple weeks ago, and uh, I was driving uh, our car full of kids uh, back home. And I came to the realization, um, as we were in the car, that none of the kids in my car have a father in their life. Um, That was true for much of my own life as well. Um, And these kids, they know what it's like to be abandoned, to be passed on from one home to another, from a grandma to an aunt's house, to now some of them at a um, transitional housing with their moms. They know what a lack of security is. And at camp, they get to hear this message that even if everyone abandons or passes them on, Jesus will never do that. He promises to walk with them till the very end. There might be that deep-seated fear in your heart too. Will I ever do anything that's going to cause Jesus to abandon me? He promises he won't. And there's real peace in knowing that, knowing that he sustains you from beginning to the end. To quote Calvin again, Calvin says this, he says, so let this become fixed in our minds, I'd say our hearts as well, that Christ has stretched out his hands to us, that he will not desert us midstream, but that as we rely on his goodness, we may confidently raise our eyes to the final day. If you're his, he will see you through to the very end. Number three, Jesus offers us a supernatural life. Verse 44 says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to me and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So remember I said, the Christian life is grace from beginning to end. It's sustained by him and him alone, not by you, not by anything else. That means that if you came to Christ, it wasn't because you're awesome, because you're super holy, because you read the whole Bible already. It wasn't because you grew up in a Christian home. It wasn't because you're really smart and figured out this whole Christianity thing's true. If you came to Christ, it's because God did a supernatural work in you. There's this uh, fantastic little book. It's a classic, Why I Am a Christian by John Stott. Uh, And in it, he asks, why am I a Christian? And he comes to the conclusion that it was because the hound of heaven pursued him. Uh, That's a phrase that comes from this poem by Francis Thompson, where Thompson uses this imagery of being hunted down uh, as if he were foxed by a hound, the hound of heaven. 
That's the truth expressed in 1 John 4.19. If we love Christ, it's because he loved us first. We're all broken, and because of the fall, we resist God. Romans 3, it says this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Because of sin, we can't see God for who he is unless he peels the scales that blind us, unless by his grace he helps us to see the truth. If you've put your faith in Jesus already, I want you to stop and think for a second. How did you come to faith? If you look back at your life in hindsight, you'll probably notice that God was working behind the scenes in your life, drawing you in, tugging at your heart. Maybe he put you in a family that clearly expressed the gospel. Maybe he let you go through some hard times where you realized, I need God. Maybe you hit rock bottom and you noticed that he was there the whole time. My own story is of him speaking in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways uh, as I tried to ignore him until he ripped the idols of my heart out of my hands. It was a story of pursuit. Despite my own decision to turn my back on him, it was a story of pursuit. If you came to faith, you know it's because he was working in your life already. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, the fact that you're here this morning or the fact that you felt a desire to show up to church or the fact that somebody dragged you in here against your will is a sign that God is doing something in you. He's drawing you. Faith is supernatural. It's a gift. It's grace. Last point is this. Jesus offers us a destiny. Jesus offers us a destiny. Verse 47. Oops. Verse 47 says this. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. There's a promise of resurrection here. And at the end of time, all those who are in Christ are promised resurrection and everlasting life. But living forever isn't the goal. Just having a really long life and not dying again, that's not the goal. Eternal life is the goal. The word eternal life is a little bit misleading. Um, it sounds as if it just means like a life that never ends, eternal, right? Um, but eternal life is actually just the translation. It's a weird translation of the phrase, which is kind of awkward in English. In, uh, in the original Greek, it would be more like the life of the ages, which is just really weird to think about. Um, it's qualitatively different than everlasting life. It's not less than just life that goes on forever. It's more than that. Eternal life is our destiny. It's not just that life goes on and on without end, but your destiny is actually something that starts now. Eternal life sustained by God. Jesus defines eternal life in this way. John 17, 3. He says this. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is about knowing God. Not just knowing who he is, but knowing him intimately. Eternal life is about sharing in the love between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. 
verse 57, says this. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Eternal life is sharing in the very life of the Father and the Son, sustained by the life of God. That's our destiny. If you're a believer, that's your destiny. Life marked by knowing God, being intimate with God, sharing in the joy that the Father has in Jesus, having God as a source of all of that. And that begins now. It's not something that you wait till heaven. Right? It begins the moment you put your faith in Jesus. I was reading uh, from this book this week, uh, The Glory of Christ by John Owen. He's a Puritan, uh, so he wrote a really long time ago. Um, but he says this. He says, <clears throat> Beholding the glory of Christ is the greatest privilege which is given to believers in this life. This is the dawning of heaven. Right? This happens now. Heaven happens now. It is the first taste of that heaven and glory which God has prepared for us. For this is eternal life, to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So what's our response to all of this? Verse 56, Jesus tells us what our response should be. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Remain in him. We remain in him by turning to him constantly and consistently. We unplug from others and plug into him alone. We turn from unfulfilling food and turn to the only food that truly sustains us, Jesus himself. As we go into this time of worship, I'd encourage you to ask yourself some questions. Am I turning to other things in life for sustenance? Or am I feeding on the bread of life? Does my life demonstrate the fact that I know and am known intimately by God? Am I pursuing Jesus because of what he offers me or because he has offered himself to me? Because the reality is that Jesus is the greatest gift that God has ever offered to us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the bread of life. You are the only thing that truly sustains. I pray that we would realize that deep down in our hearts, that you love us, that you've shown grace for us, that you pursue us, that you sustain us, that all good gifts come from you, God. But the greatest of all these gifts is yourself. You've given yourself to be known and to know us. Pray that as we go into this time of worship, that we'd be able to realize the goodness of the gift that is you. Praise in Jesus' name.